I am super excited to announce something that's been in the works since the beginning of the show, at least as an idea. Uh, we are officially launching Patreon. The goal has always been to make this a paying gig for myself and my guests. And if you are inclined to help us make that happen, now you can. We are at patreon.com slash what's my thesis. We have one tier. Our goal is $300 a month right now. And once we achieve that goal, we will take that money and start paying guests for their appearances, even past guests. We'll start with them. But the reason I started the show is because I value artists as culturally relevant as a group we are trained to think critically as our discipline which is not something you can say for other industries patreon.com slash what's my thesis and if you want to help us out but you can't do it financially you can leave us a review right now on your phone like yeah right now yeah yeah I would say I'm definitely most interested in the worthless areas. Yeah. I'm not caught up in politics. I'm no black activist on a so-called scholar's dick. I come through with the woo and drop math and versatile freestyle bombs and phonographs and deliver all things in number and weight, search to death on how living things relate because at a young age, I was molded in a religion I relied on and got caught up in superstition. Scared to split pole, ducked black cats, once in a while threw salt over my back but with knowledge of self from off the shelf, made things seem complicated, now small like elves. So turn off the lights, light a candle, and have a seance. Pull the lid off the D. Martin scandal. Wizards, warlocks, spooks, and holy ghosts. Rizzo let's defraud the hoax. Talk about the latest in Venezuela and how this has fueled that. Every time the U.S. wants to start a new war, it does it the same way, which is it invents some really inflammatory, emotionally wrenching lie that gets people to hate the government they want to topple so much that they set their rationality aside and support the war. So they claim North Korea or North Vietnam attacked U.S. ships in the Gulf of Tonkin, which was a lie to start the Vietnam War. They claim that Saddam had been ripping babies out of incubators in Kuwait to start the Gulf War, which was a lie. They claim weapons of mass destruction, which was a lie to start the Iraq War. And now you have Marco Rubio and John Bolton and Elliot Abrams, the crew, the neocon crew, who are experts at lying to start wars, going around telling lies about what the Maduro government is doing. And regardless of what you think about the Maduro government or President Maduro himself, you should be highly angry when your own government, with the help of its media, lies to you in order to start a war. And then you bring in like the attempt at USAID. I think it was like 20 million, 200 million dollars of aid while they blocked the 
Already they've seized $17 billion in Venezuelan assets in the last two months. So it's a drop in the bucket compared to what they've seized. It's not just stating that there is uh, an economic crisis. That's not the crucial point. The crucial point is which are the causes of that uh, so-called humanitarian crisis. And certainly those who are crying humanitarian crisis should be the least uh, to say that they uh, should now solve the problem. will cause starvation and people who are starving do not protest. Uh, Rubio is increasingly isolated. I think the whole thing is kind of falling apart. What will happen, however, are deepening sanctions. I mean, I don't think the U.S. can turn back from that. They're going to double down, partly out of humiliation. I, I, I don't mean to say that the U.N. Yeah. is not a wonderful organization. No, it's just time to achieve your full potential. <laughs> Nobody cared in the 1980s and 90s that there were millions of Venezuelans dying of hunger and malnutrition. No one cared. It's, it, it was a government that was palatable to Washington and a government that was a right-wing government. The moment that a left-wing government came in power, uh, priority number one in Washington was to topple it should be highly angry when your own government, with the help of its media, lies to you in order to start a war. This is the way it's gonna work. I'm gonna take your little Mexican friend with me, and I'm gonna kill him. I'm Cuban, B. Yes, Cuban B. Welcome to What's My Thesis. I am your host, Javier Proenza. Every week, my guests and I share the answers we found to the questions we have. Join us as we explore and expand our worldview through research and ask, what's my thesis? We're going to be talking about Venezuela today, mostly because it's a really good opportunity to, to just talk about narratives and magic and magical thinking in general in terms of how when something is repeated a lot and exclusively available to a certain set of people, it, it becomes like a spell, right? And we're using this as a metaphor, but it is powerful magic because people become hypnotized by this spell. So we're going to be talking about Venezuela and how... There's somebody that's declared themselves president and how that person is being supported by the U.S. government, but also by the media. And like, whatever, at this point, if you say propaganda, it's just a meaningless word. I want to explore the mechanisms <laughs> by showing you counterspells, people that have actually researched the, 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 the space that wherein Venezuela exists, the actual place, going to Caracas instead of going to the border of Colombia. And yeah, of course you're going to, I mean, you can go to Miami <laughs> and there's people that have left, my parents included, 
and they will tell you that their experience was, was very sad, but it's not a complete picture. It doesn't account for empire. And there's this narrative where, you know, communism is a failed system and socialism is bad and all these things. And I, I know those are extreme, and Marxism, and, and uh, I know those are extremes, right? But when you glorify capitalism as an economic system that is superior, you're not accounting for a lot, namely slavery, on which it is still heavily dependent using the prison industrial complex and the three-strike rule that was put forth by a neoliberal politician. The other huge omission you have to make from the narrative in order to celebrate capitalism is empire. We are not the shining beacon on the hill. We wage economic warfare. We run the financial markets because the world runs on the dollar. And we use that power. We'll get into details of the petrodollar later. But we use that economic power to bully other countries. And when countries like Libya declare that they're going to start, they're going to back their currency with gold instead of with the dollar, we take them over and destabilize the country. And Blumenthal talks about this later, but we brought back slavery to the African continent. Hillary Clinton did that under Obama. So these so-called failed economic systems and this glorified economic system, capitalism. Let's just use it for a shorthand. Let's go communism. Let's go straight Cold War. Communism, capitalism. It's not that fucking simple that one is successful and one's not. And capitalism's success is not as like, oh, it's, so, it's not as virtuous as we like to think of ourselves. But we are this. This is who we are. Anyway, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the privilege of being a Latino. We're all different. We all come from different cultures. My family technically should be Republican, but I don't know how that... They ended up so liberal, my mom and dad. Um, maybe because they... <laughs> I don't know. But they came over... My mom was a, a Peter Pan, where she came over by herself as a refugee. Uh, I don't know how her experience made her a liberal, because everybody else that did that was a Republican. But I digress. Latinos, we all have one thing in common, and that's something you don't think about, is that we all speak a common language because of Spanish colonialism. And... I recently heard somebody on, I think it was the uh, LA podcast, talking about how art, in, even in LACMA, is separated between American and Latin American. <laughs> which is to say that somehow there's a hierarchy there. They had a much more eloquent point, which had to do more with um, 
ignoring the fact that they were both here. But even the term Latino or Latin American culture, it's it's an it's identity given to us externally by Europeans, because whatever we're named after, it's Américo Vespucci, and uh, that's an Italian guy. And I'm assuming it's Latin because we speak Spanish and it's a romance language based on Latin. But that doesn't account for all the non-Spanish speaking people that were already fucking there. Pre-Columbian cultures. That didn't speak Spanish. (laughs) God damn it. There is a lot of indigenous people to account for in these countries. And I feel like that's a part of what's getting lost in this Venezuelan thing. Because we hear about a lot of Republican white Venezuelans that are capitalists and want to open the country, want the country's resources to enter a global market and help them achieve a higher status as opposed to having those resources given to the people. I mean, Venezuela has its own cryptocurrency called the Petro, and it's backed by their gold, their silver, and their oil, which is two times, it's the largest oil reserve in the world, and it's two times bigger than Saudi Arabia's. So all the resources they have, they're a wealthy, resource-wealthy country. And that was established, the Petro was established by Maduro. So, I mean, the narrative of him being a dictator, whatever you can say about his competence, and we'll get into some of the criticisms with Noam Chomsky a little bit later about Chavismo and Maduro. But, I mean, he says that some of his policies are terrible. But the idea that he is a dictator when there is video available of Maduro's security forces protecting Guaido in his car as he's driving through an angry mob of poor people who are enraged that this motherfucker has declared himself president. To say that Maduro's a dictator when he is protecting the dude that is tr- has declared himself president and is trying to get an invasion started in his own country, I mean... This is what Latinos understand. There is a common bond of struggle. And, and, you know, that has to do with being othered. And then having that common language helps us share that experience. And having the nuances within our own... The differences are what's fun for us. I mean, not all the time. Some people just hate each other. (laughs) But I feel a need to stand by Venezuela because I've seen what it's done. And like the people that are on the opposition, let's be clear, these are not liberals. They're, you, you are supporting the right wing of a country, the extreme right wing of a country. That's what Guaido and the opposition represent. And today we'll get into that. All those people who support the coup in Miami, they're all Republicans. My, or my whole life in Miami, 
people didn't want, people wanted the embargo, which meant that their family members had the privilege of having black market dollar bills, which is similar to what's happening in Venezuela. It's fucking crazy to think it's as simple as these people are starving. Because I watch, I, I don't even, I've had people try to explain to me what the mainstream narrative is, and it just doesn't, like, I can't connect the dots. It doesn't make sense. That's why I'm not repeating it in detail, because it, it doesn't make sense. I am, and already have shown you some clips by a very different kind of Cuban, which is where we come into the full disclosure part, because I want you to understand where my perspective is coming from. I am a third culture child, which is exactly as pretentious as it fucking sounds. It means that I grew up outside of my culture. And I'm also the child of immigrants. But I did that as someone whose father worked for the UN. But it should also be said that he worked for the World Bank and the Inter-American Development Bank. Or he worked as a liaison between the Inter-American Bank and the UN. He's an, he was, he still kind of dabbles in retirement. He was an economista agronomo, which is an agricultural economist. And so one of the things that is always in the back of your head as a kid is like, is my dad doing good things or is my dad doing bad things? And so we've definitely had those conversations. And so I want to sum it up to you in two stories. One was where I asked my father directly, do you feel like you're actually helping people? And he told me that he does, but a lot of times you are dealing with corruption and in, within governments, and that is a roadblock. And then the other story is a more, it feels a little bit more private, but my mom shared this with me. It seems like it was a conversation between her and him when he was very frustrated. Uh, my parents are not together anymore, but this is way back. She asked him the same question, do you feel like you're helping people? And he said, I know for sure of six people that are helped by the work I do. And that is specifically me and my siblings and my mother and my father. So just so that you understand, all these things are very complicated. <laughs> and I think that we're going to cover a little bit about... You know, the UN gets a lot of shit. Just generally, I think people think it's as problematic as maybe the World Bank and the IMF. I think it's a little bit different, and we'll get into that. Because one of the people that I've already shown you clips of is Cuban David Lynch, as I like to think of him, Alfred Desayas. And he is the UN rapporteur who went in 2018. He is Cuban-born, 1947, if I remember correctly. He is also 
a diplomat like my father. And you can hear it in his accent, which is a lot of fun. But despite what you may think about the UN, this is somebody who has the authority and the access to get into a country and really do his job. So let's hear what, let's hear him describe what his function is. Now, the function of a rapporteur is not to go around grandstanding. The function of the rapporteur is not naming and shaming. The function of a rapporteur is to listen and listen, and then to study all the relevant documentation and arrive at constructive proposals, which I formulated in my report, which was presented to the Human Rights Council last September 10, 2018. Now, I formulated many recommendations, and uh, actually the government already uh, implemented some of my recommendations even shortly after my visit. So the government that he's talking about is the Maduro government that is implementing his proposals. And this document, which I have a copy of, I'm assuming it debunks it because I haven't read it. <laughs> but if he's representing his work correctly, it's really upsetting that you're not seeing him anywhere. And I've tried to find him even in places like NPR. What I'm saying to you, I think it would have been sensible to say it to the BBC. It would have been sensible to say it to the New York Times and to the Washington Post and to The Economist and to the Financial Times. But uh, at no time since I returned from Venezuela, and since my report was officially presented to the Human Rights Council, have I been approached by any of these uh, organs who actually have a responsibility vis-a-vis -vis you and vis-a-vis -vis me and vis-a-vis -vis the people of the United States to inform? Again, this is the former UN rapporteur who's talking about his report which, according to how he describes it, I mean, I've read a little bit about it. I mean, I don't mean to get defensive. <laughs> but he... The only place that I have been able to see him talk is on YouTube, on Democracy Now!, talking to Amy Goodman, who's a hell of a journalist, and talking to Abby Martin, who used to work for Telesur. Her show's called Empire Files. And her episode is, with uh, Desaias is super in-depth. And then her brother, Robbie Martin, I'm not going to put any clips, but I should give him a shout-out. He has a really good discussion about Elliot Abrams on a podcast that he does with his sister, Abby Martin. And to be honest, I can't listen to that shit all the time because it is so hard-hitting. <laughs> and the world that we make as Americans is very dark. And this is what we're addressing. So let's talk about one of the things that the media narrative just can't get around. And it's almost hilarious if you read these articles from the New York Times, seeing the lengths that they have to go to to stack the argument in favor of the opposition while 
because they have to acknowledge that Guaido is self-declared. <laughs> and like, that's inescapable. And so we're Americans, we're democratic. Let's hear what Desai has to say about coups. As far as uh, coup d'etat, well, it is not a consummated coup d'etat. It is an attempted uh, coup d'etat. Now, we all believe in democracy. Your program is called Democracy Now. Now, there's nothing more undemocratic than a coup d'etat. And uh, also boycotting elections. As you know, there have been 26, 27 elections uh, in uh, Venezuela since uh, Chavez was elected uh, in 1998. So uh, if uh, you want to play the game, you have to participate in the elections. And uh, if uh, the opposition refused to participate in the elections, they bear responsibility for the situation that has ensued. The opposition party, of which Guaido, who declared himself president, is part of, they didn't even participate. They boycotted. It was an organized thing with the U.S. involved so that they could make the argument that Guaido ran unopposed. And this is how fucked up it is. Listen to Abby Martin right now. The opposition could have actually won that election, but instead they boycotted it. Nobody should run and nobody should vote. When opposition leader Henry Falcone disrupted the plan and filed his candidacy, the MUD opposition coalition expelled him and the White House threatened to sanction him if he didn't drop out. Henry Falcone, who is an opposition leader, I don't even fucking know who he is, <laughs> but Abby Martin does, because he tried to run, then the U.S. government threatened to sanction him. Now, what does that mean? That means your assets get seized and probably some other horrible shit that nobody wants. But someone tried to rebel within the opposition party, and the U.S. was like, fuck no. Step in line. They're now invoking Article 233 of the Constitution, saying if Maduro wasn't really elected, there's a vacuum of power that puts them in charge. Article 233 defines a vacuum of power as one of these things. One, the president's death, resignation, or impeachment. Two, permanent physical or mental incapacity. Three, abandonment of post. Or four, a recall election. Maduro fits none of those definitions. But even if he did, Article 233 clearly states that it's the vice president, not the National Assembly president, who would replace him. Even the articles from the Constitution that they are using don't apply in this situation. According to Abby Martin, who is, this is the episode that she has Alfred Desaias on. So I doubt that he disagrees. It's called An Ocean of Lies on Venezuela. Empire Files. We have here an unconstitutional situation in which the uh, legislature is usurping uh, competences that belong to the executive and to the judiciary. The judiciary has already uh, declared uh, all of these actions and declarations of the National Assembly to be unconstitutional. In terms of narrative, that is such a simple thing to explain to American people, right? They have three branches of government. They have the executive, which represents Maduro. They have the National Assembly, which is the legislature. And then there's the judiciary. It's like a one-to-one, easy-to-explain situation. 
that's not being explained on purpose. So with that in mind, imagine if someone in our National Assembly, which would be our Congress or our Senate, it's our legislature, imagine if someone declared themselves president just randomly based on a rule that doesn't apply, but they're still trying to apply it, and the judiciary goes and looks at the rules and they decide that it's not correct in defense of the executive. Checks and balances. It makes absolute perfect sense. We should be asking ourselves, do we want uh, a coup d'etat in Venezuela? And what legitimacy would the government uh, of Guaido have? And uh, what kind of elections would be held? Now, there have been, as I say, 26 or 27 elections in Venezuela since uh, 1998. And, uh, President Jimmy Carter and the Carter Center uh, went repeatedly to Venezuela to monitor those elections. And uh, Carter had a very good uh, opinion of the system uh, and of the safeguards uh, of elections in Venezuela. So if the opposition really considers itself democratic, it has to play the democratic game, and it has to participate in the elections. They have chosen to boycott the elections over the last uh, years. Think about how we talk to people and treat people in the U.S. who do not participate in the elections. Think about how horrible we are to voters who do not vote. These are politicians. <laughs> the most charming class of human being, the one that we all aspire to be like. These are politicians who refuse to participate in their country's own constitutional democratic elections and then attempt the coup. But uh, my concern, and I think it is the concern of every uh person who believes in democracy and in the rule of law, uh, is to calm the waters. My concern uh, is to avoid a civil war. One thing that I told to members of the opposition is that uh, you simply cannot uh, topple the government, and Maduro is not simply going to roll over. I mean, uh, there are seven, eight, nine million Venezuelans who are committed Chavistas, and you have to take them into account. What are you going to do with them if you topple the government through a coup d'etat? What are you going to do with these people? These people are most likely going to fight. Now, we don't want fighting. We don't want uh, uh, shedding of blood. Therefore, the only logical uh, avenue now is to call for dialogue, and I hope that the Vatican and uh, Mexico and Uruguay will lead the way. So that's about 30% of the population that he's saying is Chavista. In the end, Maduro won with 6.2 million votes, which is 31% of eligible voters. This is the same percentage Barack Obama won in the 2008 election. Not only that, but the elections were verified by four different international organizations with observers from over a dozen countries. One of those observers is the former Spanish Prime Minister, José Luis Rodríguez Zapatero, 
who said, I do not have any doubt about the voting process. It is an advanced automated voting system. And I play that clip, obviously, because it's relevant that despite the fact that the elections were supposedly rigged or whatever the narrative is, I'm, I don't even understand it because it doesn't really make sense. But despite the fact that Maduro ran unopposed, he got the same percentage of eligible voters as Barack Obama. The other thing to note is that the two agencies, we've already heard about the Carter Agency, which is American, and then the prime minister, I guess he's not an agency, but he has agency to speak on these matters. He is from Spain. So these are two countries that support the opposition. But within these two countries that want to topple Maduro, they, even they have organizations and uh, people with agency that claim that the elections are legitimate. Okay, so this is not like coming from some obscure place. Within the empire machine, there are people that have acknowledged that these elections are not what we are trying to make them out to be. And we all believe in the rule of law. We all believe in the separation of powers, in checks and balances. And uh, this National Assembly, since day one, when it was elected in 2015, aimed at the, uh, well, at a parliamentary coup against uh, Maduro. The program was called La Salida, the exit. And uh, they completely acted ultra vires. There was another problem with this National Assembly at the time. It had been determined that uh, three, at least three, uh, deputies, uh, parliamentarians, uh, had been elected uh, through fraud. Uh, this was uh, demonstrated, and the Supreme Court was called uh, to make a decision, and they instructed the National Assembly, as it is foreseen in the Constitution of Venezuela, uh, to rerun those elections. And this National Assembly was uh, confrontational. It was intransigent, didn't want to do that. Uh, so it was declared in contempt. So since that moment on, uh, whatever the National Assembly does uh, has no legal validity in the context of Venezuelan constitutional law. It's not for us, Americans or Swiss or French, to say we disagree. That is for the Venezuelan authorities to determine whether the actions of the National Assembly are constitutional or not. There you go. In terms of legal standing, in terms of Venezuelan constitution, everything that Guaido and the National Assembly are doing is illegal and invalid. It's not for me to say. It's not for Alfred de Zayas to say. It's certainly not for Trump to say or Nancy Pelosi or any of the, the war hawks. 
capitalists, neoliberals, whatever the fuck you want to call these people that present to that pretend to be on the left and represent us when they're really starving people, and we'll get there. We we're just scratching the surface. I just want it to. I just don't want you to leave here with a fucking doubt that I have looked into this shit, and I'm gonna hit you with the same points again and again and again from different sources, even though it's the same guy talking in in this case. But this is backed up by people, and there's a community of journalists that are all working together. And they end up ostracized by the mainstream media, which is what makes them band together. It's this fucking crazy thing. But, okay, but Javier Chavismo's bad. Chavez was just bad, 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 bad. So let's get into some criticisms of Chavez. And I don't know how you feel about Noam Chomsky, but he's smarter than me. I'm pretty sure he's smarter than most of the people listening to this show. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> We're all dumber than him. Listen to him answer that question of criticism of Chavismo. And listen to how he handles it differently than what you're used to hearing. For one thing, there were plenty of problems during the Chavez years. Of, but on the other hand, poverty was very sharply reduced. Educational opportunities were greatly expanded. There are regular polls taken of Latin American countries by the major Latin American polling agency, Latino Barometro. It's in Chile, not at all sympathetic to Chavez. Take a look at their polls through the, through the Chavez years. Venezuela ranked right at the top, along with Uruguay, in public popular support for democracy and popular support for the government. There was a reason for that. There was election after election, a referendum after referendum, carefully monitored. The Carter Monitoring Foundation, among others, I determined that the Venezuelan elections were among the most free in the world. Okay, that's a record of how the population felt, and there were reasons for it. There were serious errors. Actually, I've been criticizing for years. One was failure to change the colonial economy. The U.S. has been running Venezuela for a century, since it kicked out the British under Woodrow Wilson when oil was discovered. The U.S. expelled Britain unceremoniously and essentially took over the country. And since then, it's been pretty much dominating it. Lots of hideous atrocities, not to go through that. But one effect was that the economy was almost entirely based on oil. Now, one of Chavez's errors was not to change that. The economy is still overwhelmingly based on oil. It was not diversified. A second Error. Here I'm quoting the chief opposition economist, Francisco Rodriguez. That's a spokesman for the opposition, serious economist. He says a serious error of the Chavez government was not to put aside reserves during the period of high oil prices, mm-hmm. rather to expense, spend the reserves. They were spent on social programs and others inside the country. They were spent on internationalist efforts to, say, provide uh, cheap oil to Haiti, uh, which, which 
obviously couldn't barely survive and uh, many others. Also, despite the crazy talk about socialism, he left the capitalist class untouched, allowed them to enrich themselves. In fact, during this whole period, to that limited extent, the critique you mentioned is correct. What all that meant was that when the, uh, after his death, the oil, a couple of years after, the oil price declined and the government did not have reserves on hand to try to deal with the crisis. So they had to go to the international credit markets. I don't have to tell you who runs them, so you can guess what the reaction is. Then came the, the sanctions, which are harsh, brutal, devastating the population. I'll again quote Rodriguez, the chief opposition economist and a serious economist. He points out that the sanctions have turned a crisis into a humanitarian catastrophe. And by now, the latest sanctions literally bar the government from almost any resources. It's an effort to starve the population into submission. Now, Maduro, has his own policies have been awful in many respects, economic, repression, and others. But this is in the face of constant subversion. Uh, talk about the media again. For ever since the beginning of the Chavez years, the media have been virtually an open voice for the anti-Chavez opposition in ways that are almost unimaginable. So, for example, in 2002, at the beginning of the Chavez years, there was a military coup. There was a coup which threw out the government, threw out the president, dismantled the parliament, threw out the Supreme Court. The U.S., of course, openly supported it. Now take a look at the media, the New York Times. They applauded it. They thought, hey, this is wonderful. We're getting back to uh, freedom and democracy. Well, the coup was pretty quickly overthrown by a popular uprising. Has anyone ever withdrawn their praise for the military coup? And after that came years of subversion, sabotage, internal problems and errors, some of them very serious. I could say that I was personally one of the people who was actually very active in opposing human rights violations. But to disregard the achievements of those years and the popular support for them, in not only in the polls, but in election, a fair election after election, that's ridiculous. And it shows the, and by now the media barely even pretend to be covering the situation. Their opposition, the New York Times, the Washington Post, it's true of the European major media, they're simply journals for the opposition. That's what they describe. There's a lot to be said. There's no time here to go into the full details, but it's a really atrocious situation. And what is happening, as you mentioned, is a soft coup, a stranglehold, which will lead to somehow the overthrow of the government and the return of Venezuela to the kinds of circumstances that you see in the other U.S.-run countries of the region. You want to look at atrocities, crimes, and so on. Simply look at the countries that the U.S. has maintained, where it's maintained control. Uh, the Central American countries, uh, Colombia, which is the most dangerous country in the world for uh, union activists and human rights activists, 
and the has been during it. But I mean, again, there's just no time to go through the details. Colombia will be featured prominently next episode when we talk about the sanctions in relation to the aid that's being dropped there. We'll also discuss some Elliot Abrams, which is pretty intense. All of these things that we're going to be talking about scratch the surface of much deeper topics. Just elections on this one, mostly. But I want to give you some idea of what the petrodollar is before we get into sanctions next week. It is its own topic that could probably be like six episodes if I had the will to fucking be that depressed. But next we're going to hear from Max Blumenthal talking to RJ Esco on the Zero Hour. Max Blumenthal has broken stories that... The New York Times was three weeks late on, used his reporting, and then didn't give him credit. Why don't they give him credit? Because they want us to keep control of the narrative. And that has to do with aid, trucks, burning. We will talk about that. That last clip came from Chomsky's Nom, uh, Philosophy. It's a YouTube channel. And at the very beginning, I also had a clip from the War and Peace Report on Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. And it had uh, Glenn Greenwald talking about how we just get lied into wars all the time. I want to make sure I cite everything. But here we go talking about the petrodollar. And I think a lot of people who, who consider themselves progressive in this country understand that it's a puzzle with pieces that fit together. But I think for a lot of people, that mental puzzle image is missing a very big piece. And that piece is foreign policy, and that if you don't understand the way that petropolitics and, and, and other kinds of geopolitics and, and mil military adventurism or whatever you want to call it, imperial policies play into all of this, you don't have a fully three-dimensional view of the world. And it's critical, not only as a moral imperative, because we're for American citizens, but just as a, and for a complete understanding of the world around you to understand what's going on in a country like Venezuela. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a subject that I've, I've had to play catch up on just to understand the motives behind regime change in Venezuela. And then there's also the dollar, the dominance of the dollar, and how when a country threatens to, or a government threatens to de-link its economy from the dollar, for example, um, Libya's Muammar Gaddafi said he was going to back his currency with gold, uh, a year later, he faced a pretty intense regime change plot, with ended, which ended with him being sodomized with a bayonet by U.S.-backed um, al-Qaeda allies from the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group. <clears throat> I think there was an attempt, or there were discussions in Syria of doing something similar. Iran, this is another country that's tried to, you know, link its currency to gold and other you know, the, the Chinese yuan is a huge threat to the U.S., also Chinese technology. Um, the, and, and I think after Iraq, we're not really looking towards a future of conventional warfare where the U.S. is going to try to confront militaries head-on and risk losing a lot of the guys in the Rust Belt whose families are Trump's base. Uh, what they want to do is economic warfare, trade wars with China, and sanctions 
And this kind of thing happens below the radar of most Americans. I think progressives who are concerned about foreign policy and war need to pay closer attention um, to the details of these policies because ultimately it is creating instability and it will generate uh, blowback here one way or another. And people who think we're uh, an ennobling force, who still think that the United oh, yeah. States is an ennobling force, should remember you've, you've described briefly the horrific nature of Gaddafi, whatever you think of Gaddafi, the horrific nature of his, net, of his death, to which then Secretary of State Clinton, Hillary Clinton, said, we, we came, came, we, we saw, saw he, died. he died. And then she cackled. And, and laughed. You know, that so, should have disqualified her, along with the fact that she and Barack Obama presided over the return of slavery to the African continent in Libya. All right. Hillary Clinton and our first black president. Yay, brought back slavery to the African continent. You're still a, a, a liberal, but you support neoliberals like it's the same thing. It's not. Neoliberals are progressive on social issues. Things like gay rights. But when it comes to human rights, they're capitalists. They don't give a fuck. We don't go to these countries to help these people. We go to rape and pillage. And we'll get into some of that next week with Elliot Abrams and the fucked up shit that Ilhan Omar, who is my personal fucking hero, called him out on. So I'm going to read. I'm just, this is like the most basic search you could do. First two hits when I Googled Petrodollar. First one is from thebalance.com. It's called Petrodollar and the System That Created It. We're going to jump between this one and another article. Well, it's not so much an article as it is a definition of the Petrodollar on Investopedia. This is from the article on thebalance.com. The Petrodollar is any U.S. dollar paid to oil exporting countries in exchange for oil. Since the dollar is a global currency, all international transactions are priced in dollars. As a result, oil exporting nations must receive dollars. That makes their national income dependent on the dollar's value. If it fails, so does the government's revenue. So if you're a government and you're dependent on the U.S. dollar, when it goes down, you're fucked. Because it's the only reason that the dollar has the value it has is because of the fact that it is the global currency. There's really nothing backing it. So when countries try to pull away from that shit, we have to go and make sure that we do pull a regime change war so that that shit doesn't happen. Because, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's where the value is. The value of our money is in that People have to buy oil from these oil exporting countries and the prices are set in dollars and you have to have dollars to buy oil from these countries. And if these countries no longer use the dollar, the, no longer take the petrodollar, the petrodollar collapses and we are fucked, which is why we are in so many goddamn wars, which is why we are Al-Qaeda sodomized this motherfucker Gaddafi on our behalf. And as a result, 
Most of America's trade partners also peg their currencies to the dollar. This is, I'm reading again. That way, if the dollar's value falls, so does the price of all their domestic goods and services. That helps these countries avoid wide swings in inflation and deflation. So what does that tell you? That's how this empire works. We are all invested. All of our trade partners are invested in keeping the value of the dollar up. And even some of our trade partners, like Italy, Italy made a declaration that impeded the European Union from, as a collective, putting their support behind Guaido, which is good on them. That's the Cinque Stelle is the populist uh, party that's, I mean, I, have, I, I just know what they're called. Now I'm reading from Investopedia. The petrodollar was the result of the oil crisis in the mid-1970s, when prices spiked to record levels. It helped increase the stability of oil prices denominated in the U.S. dollar. The origin of the petrodollar system goes back to the Bretton Woods Agreement which replaced the gold standard with the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency. Under the agreement, the U.S. dollar was pegged to gold, while other global currencies were pegged to the U.S. dollar. But because of massive stagflation, President Nixon announced in 1971 that greenback would no longer be exchanged for gold to boost economic growth for the U.S. So they did this to boost economic growth, used to be $35 an ounce of gold. So if you had $35, you could trade it in for an ounce of gold, uh, as I understand it. I could be mistaken, but that's what I've read. That led to the creation of the petrodollar system where the U.S. and Saudi Arabia agreed to set oil prices in the U.S. dollar. That meant that other countries that purchased oil from the Saudi government would have to exchange its currency into U.S. dollars before completing the sale. That led the remaining OPEC countries to follow suit and price their oil in U.S. currencies. And then they has this convenient takeaway because this is Investopedia, which is an investing site. This is like not conspiracy. This is just the way that the fucking country is run. And that's why we go to war so much. Because countries are tired of the fucking petrodollar and we go in. And we're like, no. You can no longer run your country because you do not conform to the petrodollar system. And you get a bayonet in your ass. And Hillary Clinton laughs at it, and slavery comes back. Like, I'm just being real. Are you liberal? Or are you a capitalist? Because this is what capitalism is. This is how capitalism thrives. Anyway, key takeaways. Petrodollars are U.S. dollars paid to an oil-exporting country for the sale of oil, or simply an exchange of oil for U.S. dollars. Petrodollars are the primary source of revenue for many OPEC members and other oil exporters. Because they are denominated in U.S. dollars, the purchasing power of petrodollars relies on the value of the U.S. dollar. When the greenback falls, petrodollars do too. And just in case you didn't catch on, the greenback is the American... It's like what they call the dollar for some reason. I didn't know investors were so fucking cool. The plan Pais, it's just this neoliberal plan for returning the economy to uh, international finance and ex the extraction industries. Um, Exxon, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, these groups, 
They're funding a think tank in Washington called the Council on the Americas, which was founded by David Rockefeller as a corporate roundtable for Latin America. And the, they testified, um, they, they brought one of their experts before Rubio today, Eric Farnsworth. They're supplying a lot of the quotes uh, to mainstream media about how Maduro's running a crime family. They're really marketing the U.S. regime change effort, and they're doing so on behalf of their funders, the arms industry, the extraction industry, and international finance. And it's because they want to remove a government that has attempted to impose some kind of democratic socialism on an economy that was previously a neoliberal libertarian petrostate that guys like Rex Tillerson wanted to feast off of. So Tillerson's still a big player in this, and so is Exxon, and this in, indeed is about oil. Um, just one other point about oil. You know, oil was central to the success of Chavismo. The price of oil was $80 a barrel at, in the golden days of Chavismo, which was 2006, 2007. 2007 is when the U.S. started coming in with its soft power organizations and trying to mess things up. That's when they started training Juan Guaido and his um, leader, Leopoldo Lopez. And one of the biggest successes for the U.S. was when the, as far as regime change in Venezuela went, was in 2014 when the price of the barrel, oil barrels, went down dramatically. Why did it go down? Because, and this was reported in the Wall Street Journal and oil um, industry publications at the time, that John Kerry had made a deal with, um, I think, King Abdullah in Saudi Arabia, uh, or it was uh, the Crown Prince, to increase Saudi capacity production in order to harm Russia, Iran, and Venezuela, uh, which rely heavily on you know, high oil prices. And in exchange, Saudi Arabia would gain US support in Syria, um, and the US would increase its um, you know, delivery of weapons to Saudi-backed rebels. This was like reported openly in the Wall Street Journal. And this is what tanked the Venezuelan economy and made it so hard for Venezuela's government to start to offset the speculatory black market economy with price controls. This was kind of the beginning of the crisis that we're now seeing. And so it wasn't something that occurred organically. It was due to the petrodollar and the U.S. special relationship with Saudi Arabia. Maduro actually came out and openly said they're doing this to harm Russia um, when he himself was a target. This is how, as capitalists, neoliberals, like President Barack Obama, who's Secretary of States, Hillary Clinton, and in this case, fucking Kerry, I can't even remember his name, he's so fucking boring. Can you remember, can you remember he ran for president? <laughs> anyway, Jesus. This is all orchestrated. 2014, we get the Saudis to bring down the price of oil. This fucks the Venezuelan economy. They go to get loans, but the sanctions say, fuck you. Next week, we're going to get into the sanctions part of this because it's its own episode. But remember, Kerry goes, strikes a deal in Saudi Arabia to bring down the price of oil. In 2015, I think is what it was, 
there was the, what's his name? Desire says that that's around the time that the fraud was caught. And it was caught because they have a good election system that catches fraud. So three fraudulent candidates in the National Assembly, they asked for new elections, and then the they, they said, fuck you. And then the Supreme Court uh, said that all the shit is invalid. Does it matter what the Supreme Court says? No, because the U.S. is waging its fucking war, and it's all part of it. It doesn't matter what the, <laughs> what the judiciary, what the Supreme Court in their uh, political system, legal system, say because we run this shit and I don't want you to feel good about it. That's my thesis. But here, I'll give you a coping mechanism. Whenever I'm feeling a little angry, my favorite thing to do is uh, to just watch videos on Democracy Now! with Glenn Greenwald ripping into some asshole full, who is full of shit. There's a really good one with him. There's two really good debates with him and David K. Johnson, but it's just so much fun to watch, <laughs> uh, especially in the first one. The second one, I feel like since in the first one, uh, David K. Johnson starts speaking. So by the time that uh, Glenn Greenwald gets to go, he's got so much meat to rip into and tear apart. On the, ne uh, on the second debate, <laughs> Greenwald starts, so Johnston doesn't really have much, and he kind of is, it, the space is already, like, he can already, he can't say certain shit because of all the stuff, but I highly recommend it. It's about uh, the Mueller report and all the fucking goalposts moving and all of that shit. Like, if you are distracted by that, you are not looking at this, and that's my fucking point, because... That whole thing is a part of a bigger, broader issue. That we have to fight wars to defend our currency. And maybe something should be done about that so we don't have to fucking do that. I mean, it would be great. The other piece is that they're fighting the Green New Deal. As they are actively pursuing the largest oil reserves in the world, in Venezuela, and toppling a democratic socialist government. The difference between socialism and democratic socialism is insane. And we're not going to get into it, but you should know that it's not the same thing by now, because it is within the Overton window. It is not a radical idea. Anyways, see you next week. Support these people that I've shown, introduced you to on this show. Give them money. Support Empire Files. Support Democracy Now. Support, you know, I mean, just entertain yourself with Glenn Greenwald. And uh, the Gray Zone Project is where Max Blumenthal is from. And he's done a lot of good work with Aaron Mate. And... Um, we're gonna, we showed a, li a little clip of uh, Anya Parampil, who also is from the Gray Zone Project. This is important shit to know.
so that you do not live in an illusory state and then get blindsided by the real world that you were distracted from because you were caught in your magical thinking about how capitalism is the only true way and that no other political system or economic system is viable. That's just a false narrative that we didn't believe in this country. In the 50s, we were democratic socialists. It's the children, it's the fucking boomers who grew up getting attracted to ideas like neoliberalism and libertarianism. And whatever the fuck neoconservatism is, it is the evilest shit. And if you are supporting Trump, you are supporting the worst fucking human beings. John Bolton, Elliot Abrams, and, uh, well, Donald Trump. <laughs> And finally, Glenn, if you can talk about the latest situation in Venezuela. Um, to say the least, President uh, Maduro under siege, uh, Juan Guaido, the um, opposition leader, has named himself president. The U.S. deeply, overtly uh, involved with this, choosing Elliot Abrams as their point person, but Secretary of State Pompeo, Vice President Pence, uh, National Security Advisor John Bolton, the latest uh, controversy centers around U.S. sending so-called humanitarian aid to Venezuela, trying to get it through the Colombian border, uh, Maduro saying no. Can you comment on what's happening here? Obviously, there's a lot of criticism of Nicolas Maduro, including by leftists who are loyal to President Chavez. It doesn't just come from the Venezuelan right or from um, capitalists in the West. Uh, there is a lot of criticism of President Maduro. The question is not, though, do you like President Maduro? The question is, do you think the Venezuelan people are going to be helped by having Donald Trump, John Bolton, Mike Pence, and Elliot Abrams intervene in their country, engineer regime change, and then prop up whatever leader they like best. And all you have to do is look at not just the history of U.S. interference in Latin America, but the statements that those people are making about what their real motives are. They're not even pretending that their motive is to bring liberation and democracy and freedom to the Venezuelan people. Of course, Donald Trump doesn't care about the Venezuelan people. How gullible do you have to be to think that? They're admitting openly that their motive is access to Venezuelan oil markets and to capital markets, because that would benefit United States and its oligarchical class. And so to watch the bipartisan media and uh, political class in Washington, like Nancy Pelosi and other leaders of the Democratic Party, stand behind Donald Trump, someone they're usually calling a racist and a fascist and a xenophobe and a monster, as he tries to engineer regime change in Venezuela, using people like Elliot Abrams, who in the past has used the pretext of humanitarian aid to send weapons to the rebels that he wanted to help overtake the government of a country, is really kind of stunning. But that's what always happens in American discourse. Imperialism is always cheered. We always believe we have the right to interfere in other countries, and that because we're so intrinsically good, only benevolent outcomes will be the result. And it's really disturbing to watch this kind of unanimity. With some rare exceptions, you have Ro Kahana, Tulsi Gabbard, some other people, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, saying we have no role to play 
in Venezuela, but by and large, the bipartisan class, as they always do, is united behind Donald Trump, Marco Rubio, and John Bolton as they try and engineer regime change in a country that they don't understand, don't care about, and only want to exploit. And the significance of them having as a partner um, Bolsonaro, the new far-right former army captain, the president of Brazil. Yeah, I mean, it's—I it's, mean, the—you the, know, usually what happens in these kinds of cases is there's at least an attempt made to make liberals feel good about what the real motives are. You know, we're going to change reg the regime in Libya, not because we care about the oil, but because we just want to help the Libyan people be liberated from this bad dictator, the same with Iraq, you know, pulling babies out of incubators. There's at least an attempt made. And here, there's barely an attempt made. It's all very explicit and blatant. And the fact that the leading U.S. partner in Latin America to do this is Jair Bolsonaro, should tell you everything you need to know about what the real motives are in terms of what the U.S. government is trying to accomplish in Venezuela. It's nothing good for the Venezuelan people, no matter what your view of Nicolas Maduro is. It's all about imposing a far-right ideology for the benefit of everybody but the Venezuelan people. What's My Thesis is produced by Javier Proenza, who is talking in the third person. Reach out at whatsmythesis at gmail.com and follow us on all social media at whatsmythesis. Don't forget to review and subscribe. And if you donate to our Patreon, this is where I'll give you a shout out and make up what kind of art you make based entirely on your name and nothing else.